The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We are now going to God's Word together. We're going through the book of Revelation, one of the longest books in the New Testament. Very significant. Appropriately put at the end of your Bible because it shows us how everything ends according to God's plan how everything ends in history and how everything ends and really just begins for all eternity. The culmination of all the hundreds and thousands of prophecies in the Old Testament. Revelation should not be a neglected book by the church. It should be a frequently studied book by the church. And there are blessings that come with that according to chapter 1, verse 3. And it's also a practical book for many different reasons. It tells us how everything ends. And the end is good news. That's probably one of the most encouraging things about Revelation. It is reality. It's really going to happen, and it ends with good news. It's quite amazing, the story it tells. It's prophetic in nature. A lot of symbolism that is used, but God told us that in chapter 1, that God would communicate these things to John the Apostle through signs, Greek word, samion, signs, visual pictures, things that he could hear in a prophetic trance or a prophetic state. So it would be different than any other New Testament book in terms of how it's written, composed. So he warned us, but that doesn't mean it's beyond comprehension. Just the opposite is true. It's in clear, plain language for us to understand the language of the people. Also, God has given us the indwelling Holy Spirit as individual Christians to help understand and be illuminated to the truth of his scripture that includes revelation. And also, God has given us gifted teachers throughout 2,000 years of the church, fulfilling the promise of Ephesians 4:11 and 12, that God would give us teachers so we could understand his truth. So, Revelation, what a great joy we have. Before we get to it, uh, we've been going through Revelation uh, about a chapter at a time or a section at a time, logical pieces at a time. We're going to pick up in Revelation chapter 8 today. Uh, We're in the middle of the tribulation. Hopefully, I'm going to get you out of the tribulation real quick. It's safe and sound. That's my goal. Uh, Before we get to Revelation chapter 8 in the middle of the tribulation, background information. I do want to read a section from Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 to 24, when I introduced the book of Revelation a few months ago, I noted that of the 400 plus verses in Revelation, more than half of those make a direct reference or a direct allusion to some truth in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all over the book of Revelation because Revelation is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And I don't have the time, uh, just about every other verse just leaks Old Testament truth or fulfillment. And I just don't have the time to do that, but I do want to highlight a couple of things that are kind of background and set the stage for where we're at in the middle of the tribulation. The tribulation, according to the book of Daniel, was a seven-year period. And according to Daniel chapter... or According to the book of Daniel, uh, the tribulation is a seven-year period. And also, according to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, uh, the tribulation was to be a future period. It was to be a time of trouble where God would judge his enemies literally on the earth in an unprecedented manner and in a universal way that he had never done before. And so we see that fulfilled in the book of Revelation. So that's where we get that seven-year period from. Daniel said it would be seven years. Um, The Old Testament makes dozens and dozens and dozens of references to this tribulation period time, calling it all kinds of different things from the time of Jacob's trouble to the day of wrath. The day of the Lord is another frequent moniker used in the Old Testament. 
in a technical way to refer to the Great Tribulation. Uh, it is called the Time of Tribulation in Revelation chapter 3. It is called the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24 by Jesus. Jesus coined that phrase, Great Tribulation. And then John even uses that term in Revelation 7, the Great Tribulation. And primarily what God is doing during the seven-year period is He's judging His enemies, and they are called earth dwellers. In the book of Revelation, 13 times God refers to His enemies as earth dwellers. Those are people who reject Jesus Christ willingly, knowingly. They reject Jesus Christ. They reject the gospel. They reject God's offer of grace. So God is pouring His wrath out upon earth dwellers all over the world during the tribulation. And in a unique kind of way, God is also protecting many of His believers. So God is making a distinction as He pours out His wrath. Special ways He's protecting believers who have embraced Christ during the time of the tribulation while at the same time He's pouring down His wrath. God makes a distinction with respect to His wrath. Uh, and that's the background of Exodus chapter 8. If you remember, during the time of Moses, Moses led about 2 million of the Jews or the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. And in order to do that and set the stage, God rained down 10 plagues on the Egyptians who despised and hated God and upon Pharaoh. Every one of these plagues, these 10 plagues, was a judgment directly from God toward Pharaoh, his hardened heart, and his wicked people. Number one, to punish the Egyptians. Number two, to protect and set free God's people, the Israelites. And in His judgments, these ten plagues, God made a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites, His people. Listen to the distinction He makes in just one of the ten plagues, Exodus chapter 8, starting at verse 20. Now the Lord, this is 1400 B.C., okay? Now the Lord said to Moses, Yahweh said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go. That's the Israelites, the Jews in order that they may serve Me. For if you will not let My people go, behold, this is a warning, behold, I will send swarms of insects. Earlier, in verse 16 and 17, these were some kind of a gnat or lice. Probably some kind of very irritating insect that actually would land on you and who knows, does what? Attach itself to you like a, a small leech. And he said he was going to send swarms of these things. Uh, verse 21, For if you do not let my people go, behold, I'm going to send swarms of insects. And he says swarms three times. It is emphatic. This is a kind of swarming insect that we can't even imagine. This is just like blankets and walls. This smothering thickness of insects surrounding you. I don't know about you. I've seen people flip out over one fly in the kitchen. <laughs> At our house. Ten feet away. Then I have to come, here I am to save the day. <laughs> Swarms of insects like lice, these little tiny nagging leeches. Every time you open your mouth, they just fill your mouth, your nostrils. This is what's going on here. Swarms of insects on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. Get this. And in the houses of the Egyptians will be full of the swarms of insects and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, the small little lot of land in Egypt where My people, the Israelites, are living so that no swarms of insects will be there upon the Jews, upon the Israelites, in order that you may know you Egyptians may know, you Pharaoh may know, that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. This isn't just some natural phenomenon. 
This is a specific judgment from God with partiality upon His enemies. Protecting His people at the same time. Verse 23, And I will put a division between My people, the Jews, and your people, the unbelieving Egyptians. Tomorrow this sign shall occur. Then the Lord did so. And there came great swarms of insects into the house of Pharaoh and the houses and servants. And the land was laid waste because of the swarms of insects in all the land of Egypt. Yet not one gnat, not one insect invaded Goshen where God had protected His people. The point there is that there are supernatural, miraculous plagues that are directly sent from God to judge people at certain times to accomplish His purpose. That is true in the future tribulation. You can turn now to Revelation chapter 8. These are not just natural, ongoing, ho-hum, this is the way it is, this is the way it will always be, a natural phenomenon. These are supernatural acts of God for a divine purpose at a specific period in history to judge His enemies, but also to protect His people. So all these judgment that we see coming from God called the wrath of God. We saw at the end of Revelation chapter 6, it was called the wrath of the Lamb. Chapter 6, verse 16, the wrath of the Lamb and the great day of God's wrath. This is wrath and anger and hatred God has towards sin, towards rebels who refuse to repent. It's not wrath He's pouring out on His people. Although there will be believers during the time of the tribulation. And yes, they will be living on this world that God is judging. And they will be affected in tangential ways by that, but at the same time they're going to be protected in unique ways in the midst of that. We saw that last week in Revelation chapter 7 because the whole point of chapter 7 was just before God unleashes this fury of wrath in the second half of the tribulation, the last three and a half years, which is the worst time of God's wrath, before God unleashes that, He seals and protects a specific number of His people. In Revelation 7, it was 144,000 believing Jews. They were sealed, protected with the name of the living God and Jesus Christ. Meaning that they weren't going to have to undergo. They will be preserved somehow supernaturally from the following plagues that we see. And then in Revelation 12, there's another specific group of God's believing people He's going to protect in a unique, isolated place somewhere in the desert while He's pouring out all this wrath. He makes a distinction among His people. God is a good God. He's a Savior. He's a saving God. So this isn't just some fickle, whimsical, capricious pouring out of fury that would typify the Greek gods with no discrimination whatsoever because he's in a bad mood. No, this is calculated. This has a purpose that glorifies God. This has a purpose. This is good for people. This has a purpose that even softens and woos some sinners to repentance. We'll see that. So that's where we are in the middle of the tribulation. As I said, we left off. Uh, Jesus, who is the Lord of the universe, is the one actually initiating all these judgments in the future. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And the fact that He is initiating these judgments, He's carrying these judgments out on behalf of God the Father as typified or seen by He's the one peeling away these sealed judgments one at a time because Jesus has the authority to do that. They are sequential judgments. They are chronological judgments. They began at the seven-year tribulation period at the very beginning. They continue and will culminate at the end of the seven-year tribulation. We saw how He went through the first six sealed judgments. And then He got uh, to the seventh seal. And when He pulled away the seventh seal, we're going to see that inside the seventh seal are seven more judgments that are called the seven trumpet judgments. And then God's going to unleash these seven trumpets one at a time. And when He get, finally gets to the seventh trumpet... 
and the seventh trumpet is blown, God's going to reveal seven more judgments called the seven bowls. So it's like a telescope is the portrayal or the picture that we are to see here. Uh, They are systematic. They're telescopic. They're building on one another. They are climaxing. They're getting more and more severe as we go. I think they're getting quicker and quicker too in terms of the amount of time they take. They're getting more universal and severe. And it's all leading to the end because God has a glorious purpose in all of this. So you've got these judgments from God that start out as seven seals. And inside the seventh seal are seven trumpets. And inside that seventh trumpet, there are seven bowls that culminates all of God's judgment and brings us to the end of the seven-year tribulation that we'll see in Revelation 16. And here's another way to say it. Uh, The first of the six seal judgments and the first of the trumpet judgments and the first of the the bowl judgments, they all begin at different times in that seven-year tribulation because the the first of the six seals began at the beginning of the tribulation. The first of the trumpet judgments, I believe, begins at the middle of the tribulation. Then the first of the bold judgments happens at the very end of the tribulation. They all begin at different times. They all end at the same time at the end. We'll see that as we go. But let's go ahead and look at uh, Revelation chapter 8 now. After God has unleashed these first six seal judgments, and then before He continues with the seventh seal of judgment, He wants to protect some of His people and seal them first before the trumpet judgments. So we saw that last week and now... He is ready to implement these seven trumpet judgments that begins at the middle of the seven-year tribulation. So let me read, and you can follow along. Revelation chapter 8, 1 through 13. And when He, that's Jesus the Lamb, and when He broke the seventh seal, there it is, finally unveils that seventh seal after that hiatus of chapter 7. And when He broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him, that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, and he filled it with the fire of the altar, and he threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds or of literally voices and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And the first sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burnt up and all the green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star, literally asteroid, a stare, fell from heaven, burning like a torch, fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water and the name of the star was called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became wormwood or bitter. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Verse 12, And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were smitten, so that a third of them might be darkened, and the day might not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. And I looked, and I heard an an eagle, or literally a vulture, flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Whoa! Whoa, 
Woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Wow. So these are the beginning of the seven trumpet judgments. Let's go ahead and look at these. And like I said, these, are, these trumpets represent the wrath of Jesus Christ, the wrath of the Lamb. That's what I called the sermon today. Last week was the protection of the Lamb or from the Lamb. But there's also the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is a Savior. Jesus also is a judge. And depending upon your relationship with Him and what you believe about the Gospel and what you believe about your own sin, whether you embrace Him as Savior and Lord or you reject Him as Creator and Judge and Savior, that depends on how He will treat you as your Savior or as your judge. And here Jesus is going to judge unbelievers in the tribulation. And He does it through these trumpet judgments, which I believe are more severe than the seal judgments that we just saw. There's this crescendo, this rising crescendo of severity in all of these judgments. So let's go ahead and look at the first four of the trumpet judgments. And I'm not making up a fabricated or synthetic break here in terms of the trumpet judgments. That's how John breaks them up. Or actually, that's how God breaks up the the trumpet judgments. Just as the first four seals were equivalent to the four horses, so also the first four trumpets are unique and they stand out from the last three trumpets. So we're going to take the the first four trumpets together and how they're given because the last three trumpets are also called woes. They are distinct from the first four. Uh, So we're going to look at the first four trumpets today and then we'll pick up on the last uh, or the second two trumpets next week. Um, So let's go ahead and look at that. What are these four trumpet judgments that are coming in the future? Before John introduces the trumpets, he tells us, he prepares us for the significance of them. And so that's verses 1 through 6. Let's look at that. The preparation of God's wrath through the trumpet judgments. Starting at verse 1, it says, He, I said that was Jesus the Lamb. He continues in His role, mediating the works of God on earth as the Savior, as the rightful judge, high priest, everything that He does. Jesus is God in the flesh. He has that right. And He broke the seventh seal as an act of judgment. Now, every time He's broken a seal previously, some noise happened or some judgment happened. Something quite vivid immediately happened and transpired. And we're going to see that, well, not on this seal. There's something unique that never happened before happens with this seal. You have this expectant once he unleashes the seal. It's like, run for cover. That doesn't happen here. Just the opposite is true. It says, when Jesus the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence. That is totally unexpected. There was silence, and there's silence in heaven for about a half hour. That's odd. There's silence. What's the significance of that? Well, depending upon what commentaries you read, you can come up with six different reasons of what that means that there was silence in heaven. They're all over the map. I'm just going to take the simple uh, approach here. What has been happening in heaven? John got launched up into heaven in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And ever since he's been there, from Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 6, chapter 7, it has been loud in heaven. That's what we learned, wasn't it? There was a loud trumpet. There was a loud voice. There was a loud worship. There were loud angels. It is just loud. Many times it says mega loud. Heaven is a loud place. Thunder, peals of thunder, lightning, multitudes and myriads of angels crying out in a loud voice. It is loud in heaven. And it has been non-stop. The present tense keeps being used chapter after. That means it's ongoing, ceaseless, continual, loud, deafening noise to a human level. And all of a sudden, total silence. That's significant. I think it's a sign to John as the prophet. Something very significant is about to happen, John. 
as you continue on. I think it is significant because, like I said, from all you take all the prophecies together, John is right now at the midpoint of the tribulation. That is the turning point of the tribulation. That's where God just cranks it up in terms of His wrath and His fury. It's going to be devastating. I would say that the silence in heaven at this point is the calm before the storm. This silent expectancy. Kind of like when I was a kid and you knew you did some, one of the kids did something wrong. And the parents found out about it. And then there's this, this silence, this frightening, deafening silence behind the parents' door for about an hour or a half hour. And it's like, this doesn't sound good. The silence was frightful. Because you know, whoa, the wrath is coming. I think it's exactly what's going on here. And many times in Scripture, one of the ways that God, God judges people in many ways. His wrath is manifest in many ways. He does it through providence. He does it through nature. He does it through natural consequences. He does it with supernatural intervention at times. One of the ways that God also pours out His wrath on unbelievers many times is with silence. Like in the Old Testament where He cut off revelation as punishment upon them. And He was silent for 400 years. When John, uh, the high priest, disobeyed what he was supposed to do in Luke chapter 1 as the high priest, God rebuked him and said, and just said, you can't talk, and, and struck him with silence. He couldn't speak. That was an act of judgment. So silence very frequently comes from God as an act of judgment, and this could very well be that, as far as we know. I, I don't agree with that one pastor who said, well, this verse just proves there's no women in heaven because there's silence there. I, I didn't say that. That was some, some other pastor was telling me that. I said, I don't think I'm going to say that. You're a brave dude. Silence in heaven for about a half hour. And I think half hour, no reason not to take it literally. It could have been what, you know, John is getting these revelations one after the other, after the other, after, you know, in set, nonstop. And then I think, yeah, he gets this 30-minute break of just sitting there contemplating, whoa, what is coming? Is it the wrath? Is it the judgment of God? And you can find all kinds of verses in the Old Testament and the Psalms and Habakkuk and Zechariah and so many of these minor prophets where God tells the earth to be silent just before His wrath is poured out. And I think that's what's going on here. The calm before the storm. Silence for about a half hour. And it's a half hour because it's a short period of time. It's not going to last forever. Uh, so that's part of the preparation. Uh, then in verse 2, it said, I saw, so John, you know, there's a silence. And then after the silence, it says that I saw the seven angels who stand before God. Uh, these are angels who are prepared. They're, they're before God with saluting, ready, reporting to, for duty, sir. That's the imagery. Seven select angels. We don't know who they are, but they are prepared and ready to do God's bidding. And they are going to be given seven trumpets, the trumpet judgments. And they, it, the trumpets were given to them by God. And verse 3 says, And another angel come, a different angel uh, than the other seven. He came and he stood at the altar. This altar was referred to earlier in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, Revelation 6:10. one of the, uh, the fifth seal judgment says in verse 9, And when uh, Jesus broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar, that was the golden altar of incense that was in heaven. And under that altar... There were souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God during the time of the tribulation. These were tribulation martyrs crying out, praying to God, God, justify us. 
Bring your wrath upon our enemies. When will you punish our enemies that, that killed us? And God said, in just a little while, in just a little while. So their prayers are finally answered. And I think this is the answer to their prayer in this chapter. Now is the time. I'm going to answer the prayer that these saints prayed before the golden altar in, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Part of the trumpet judgments and bold judgments answer that prayer. So there's this angel who's before that golden altar where the saints were praying. Uh, asking for God's intervention. They were, uh, this angel was holding a golden censer, also called the fire pan in uh, the Old Testament. And much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of the saints. And in the Old Testament, when uh, the high priest lit incense, it did picture the prayers of the saints going up to God as a pleasing sacrifice to him. And so that's part of what's being represented here. Prayers of the saints are going up before the throne of God. Prayers of vengeance, these imprecatory prayers asking for God to do justice on earth dwellers. Uh, much incense was given to them that he might add it to the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God. And I think this was the prayers of the future tribulation saints going before God in answer to Revelation chapter 6, 9, and 10. Up before God, out of the angel's hand. God hears that prayer. God answers that prayer. God moves and responds to prayer. That's the amazing thing that we will never understand in this lifetime. God is 100% totally sovereign, in control, does whatever He pleases at all times, influenced by no one. Totally independent. And at the same time, He's a personal, intimate, immediate God who's only a prayer away and literally answers, responds to, and moves passionately in response to the prayers of His people. How do you resolve that in your mind, Pastor? I don't. That is beyond comprehension. That's why God is called the incomprehensible one. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. That is His name. The sovereignty of God. The free will of man. I don't get it. It's miraculous. It is amazing. And God is sovereign. Yet He answers the prayers of these saints in His perfect time. And in a perfect manner. And we see that as He answers prayer. Don't give up on your prayers. Do you ever pray and think, God's not hearing my prayer? God's not hearing my prayer. I think we've all said that as Christians, right? I know I have. Boy, He's not listening. Why is this taking so long? God doesn't care. God is distant. I'm praying the wrong thing. Help me out. Help me with my prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. No, you need to keep praying. You need to keep persevering, right? Persevering in prayer. God does hear our prayers. That's why the Holy Spirit intercedes and prays on our behalf because sometimes we don't know what to pray. It says Romans 8, right? Jesus Christ, it says in Romans 8, is our high priest praying for us to help us. Hebrews 4, praying for us because we don't know how to pray. So God, He does. He hears our prayers. Keep praying. Keep persevering. Don't give up. The perseverance of the saints. So there's this angel and the censer and the prayers. Verse 5, and the angel took the censer. And he does something that is bewildering. Out of the ordinary, unprecedented, he filled it with the fire of the altar. And they would. They take these burning coals of fire and, so that you could burn the incense with. And he fills the fire pan with this these fire uh, from the altar up in heaven. And he takes it and he throws it to the earth. That is a destructive action, an act of fury and judgment. This angel does that. Throws it to the earth. It's a picture of what's about to happen. It's a picture of the fury of God. And it's fire. By the way, you're, we're going to see fire in the next four trumpet judgments on the earth. He throws it to the earth, and that's where God is going to pour out the first four trumpets. It is fire on earth. The implication is the next four judgments you see that happen on earth cannot be explained away as natural phenomena or global warming or the second law of thermodynamics. This is a supernatural intervention by Almighty God Himself. 
thrown to the earth by one of his commissioned angels. And after he threw it to the earth, there followed peals of thunder and voices and flashes of lightning and an earthquake up in heaven. What is that? That is God getting, that is God rolling up his sleeves. Because if you go to Exodus chapter 19, when God called all of Moses and all the Jews to come to the foot of the mountain in Exodus 19, he said, prepare yourself, cleanse yourselves, come to the foot of the mountain, don't touch the mountain lest you die as you approach a holy God. And I will meet you on the third day. And it says, Yahweh came down upon the mountain. And God spoke unto the people. And the description that is used by the very presence of God, as it says, the presence of God came down upon the mountain. Well, God doesn't have a body. And it says they saw God. Well, what did they see? They saw outward manifestations that were frightening and terrifying of God. And you know what they saw? Everything they saw about God in Exodus 19 is identical and mentioned right here in this passage. Smoke, lightning, peals of thunder, fire, an earthquake, and loud voices. Every one of those is in Exodus 19. This is the immediate presence of a holy, judging God about to act. That's what it is. Verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound their trumpets. And here they go. Let's go ahead and look at those. They're pretty simple and straightforward. Many of these parallel the plagues in the Old Testament uh, during the time of Egypt. So let's look at the first chump, trumpet judgment. Uh, we'll look at the first four. Uh, the first was in, in verse 7, chapter 8. So the first angel of God gets up and he, he blows his trumpet. It is a loud, glaring trumpet. And in the Old Testament, trumpets are used all the time to prepare for war, acts of judgment, to get the people ready. They were just used to communicate with the people that something significant by God and His people is about to happen. And that's what he's doing here. He blasts his trumpet. And immediately it says there came down hail and fire. That was one of the plagues of the Old Testament. Hail and fire brought down from God on the Egyptians to destroy all their crops. Hail and fire. But something is added here. Um, it says there came down hail, fire mixed with blood. And blood is, again, a sign of death and judgment. Hail and fire mixed with blood. Notice the fire from the fire pan. Mixed with blood, they were thrown to the earth. Hail was thrown to the earth. So again, this is God doing it. This is, oh, there was just a natural uh, hailstorm that happened and it's explained away. No, it's not explained away. God did it. They were thrown to the earth by God specifically at a specific time towards a specific group of people to accomplish a specific purpose. And a third of the earth was burnt up. from. So the hail comes down and destroys everything or everything that it hits. And then there's fire with it so that when the fire hits the ground, it's burning the earth. And how much of the earth was burnt? It says, and a third of the earth was burnt up, and a third of the trees were burnt up, and, a, and all the green grass was burnt up, which would be the third of the living green grass at the time, because all the grass around the world isn't green. About a third of it is alive, and the rest is dormant till its season. So a third of everything is damaged here. God is damaged. Now, one of the common denominators of the first four trumpets is that the first four trumpets are judgments against the earth, against creation, not against humanity directly. That will be different for trumpets 5 and 6. This is against creation. Every one of them. And by the way, a third, a third, a third, that's re repeated throughout the trumpet judgments. Why just a third? Well, a couple of reasons. I think God is showing some restraint here. He is a saving... God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That is the heart of God. What is it? This is one last warning. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come, drink. Be saved. Every soul is mine, says Ezekiel 18. 
God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Repent and live, says God. That's what He wants. So He's restraining His wrath. He's not going to restrain Himself in Revelation 16 with the bold judgments. But He's restraining. This is like Jesus giving the sop to Judas, the honored spot. Judas, one last time, repent! That's what's going on here. So a third. And the earth is... I also think that He's attacking the earth specifically is because... Uh, all throughout history, humanity, sinful humanity inevitably gravitates towards worshiping not the Creator, but what? The creation, doesn't it? It's been true all throughout history. We're, we're right back in the same boat again with the religion of environmentalism. And it's going to get worse. Everything that the world holds sacred is going to be damaged and poisoned by the God who created it. So that's the first trumpet. It is a judgment upon the earth, the trees, the grass. And you know, this affects oxygen and what we breathe. There are ramifications to that judgment. So let's go on to the second trumpet judgment. And this uh, is a blazing meteor. Again, fire pummeling the earth. Uh, Verse 8, the second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a great uh, like. That's a key word. It's a Greek word. It's a specific word. It it means something like it, similar to it, or it looked like it. It doesn't mean it is. Okay, so this is like a simile. It's a comparison. It's like a great mountain. So it's not, God didn't take a mountain and throw it to the earth. It's like a great mountain. It's huge. It is massive. That's what it means. It's like a great mountain. It is burning with fire. What is this? This is probably a meteor. Is it one out in space right now? I don't know. Maybe it's one God just makes at the time. So you've got this huge, massive, fire-burning meteor that God is going to slam into the earth like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Notice it is thrown. It is thrown by God. He is in charge. And He throws it into the sea. That was His target. And He hit exactly what He wanted to hit, the sea. Seventy percent of the earth is covered with sea, if not more. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the sea turned to blood. That is a miracle. That is a miracle. It's it's amazing how many Christian commentators who write in Revelation say, well, it didn't really turn into blood. It, It didn't. Well, it says right here. And a third of the sea became blood. It literally turns into blood. Well, that's impossible. God does the impossible. God does miracles. It's really going to turn into blood. Not like blood. Same thing in the Old Testament. It says God turned the Nile into blood. That's what it says in Exodus. Then it says it in, in Psalm 78, in Psalm 105. He turned the Nile into blood. And then you go read commentaries. F. F. Bruce, who was a great scholar, and he says, well, actually, the Nile didn't turn into blood. What you've got to understand is when you're in Palestine at dawn and the sun comes from a different direction and you're at a certain angle, the Red Sea, it looks kind of red. No, he turned it into blood. He's going to do the same here. This is amazing. It's a miraculous God. Well, what happens when God turns a third of the sea into blood? Well, you can imagine, verse 9, a third of the, of the creatures living in it are going to die, which were in the sea and had life. They died and a third of the ships are also going to be destroyed because it's going to be tumultuous. It's going to affect our entire environment. Uh, the tides, the moon, everything is going to be uh, shaken by this. So God is attacking the earth, His creation, to get a message across. And He's, and he's restraining Himself. It's just a third of it. Warning after warning. Please come to me. Repent. Let's go to the third trumpet. So after the hail, into the earth, after the meteor, into the sea, then another similar one, and that's verse 10. And the third angel sounded, and a great star Literally, asteroid, aster, aster. That's where we get the word asteroid. A great star. It's huge. It is massive. It fell from heaven. 
actually was thrown from heaven, burning like a torch. There's that fire again. They all have fire in common. It fell on a third of the rivers. There's the third again. It is re- God is restraining it. There are parameters here. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. So he attacks the waters. God pollutes our drinking water. Can you imagine what a fit environmentalist would have today with that idea of God? That God deliberately pollutes our drinking water. I thought God was a conservationist. I thought he was the chairman of the Sierra Club. No, he's not. He is the creator. He owns everything and he does what he will with it for his purposes. So he poisons the drinking waters, all the rivers, one-third of them. Verse 11, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. That is bitterness. That means bitterness. There's actually a plant called uh, Wormwood in Palestine, and it is bitter, like skunkweed. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men, not everybody, but some were susceptible to it. And many men died, or people died from the waters when they did drink it because it was poisoned or polluted. So again, God is just judging creation. Let's go on to the fourth trumpet judgment from God. Well, you would think that these universal cataclysmic judgments that are happening just one after the other, affecting the most vital and important and fundamental needs in human life, that all of humanity would be crying out and bowing down before God and Jesus and say, I relent, I repent, forgive me, it's you, I give up. They don't. They don't. You know what these sinners do is they harden their hearts all the more. They stiffen their fists just a little bit more. It's sad. Some will get saved. Some will be hardened, but categorically, for the most part, they get all the more hardened like Pharaoh did in the Old Testament. An identical parallel. So the last of these trumpet, ju- trumpet judgment number four, and that's verses 12 and 13. And the fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun. Now there's the fire there. That's just the sun as a ball of fire. And it is affected this time. A third of the sun. Not a, notice not the whole sun, just a third of it. Somehow, we don't know how God does it. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars were smitten. They are smitten by God. This isn't a natural phenomenon. This is direct, miraculous intervention by God the Creator in the future. They will be smitten by God for the purpose that a third of them might be darkened. And the day might not shine for a third of it in the night in the same way. And we don't know how long this goes on where just a third of the light is taken away. And that definitely affects all of creation and plant growth and everything else. And so God is making a clear warning to all of creation that the creator of the universe is in charge and time is up. Time to ante up. Where's your commitment? With God the creator and Jesus Christ, his son and in the glorious gospel or in the false gospel, yourself, your sin, the antichrist, the devil, the world and hell. People are going to have a clear choice. Very clear choice. This is universal. And you just see the news networks at the time and the spin they are going to put on it. What is Bill O'Reilly going to say if he's still in the tribulation during this time? Because he's the no-spin meister, right? But all those other channels, man, they're going to put a spin on this uh, with natural explanations. Oh, we should have seen this coming and Al Gore was right. and blah, blah. Who knows what they're going to say? But we know this is from God. Verse 13. And I looked. So John is just overwhelmed. And I looked... And I heard, again, this hearing thing is a big deal as he gets these revelations. Remember the silence he heard? And all of a sudden he hears an eagle, a vulture. King James says angel. It is not angel. It's the word vulture. Vultures go, eagles go. Whichever one it is. Eagles are predators. They go to kill. 
or vultures. They go where there's dead bodies. As in the Gospel of Luke, the same word is used. Luke 17, 37. Vulture. So he hears this eagle flying in mid-heaven. Mid-heaven! So, in other words, it's in the middle of the sky, broad daylight, so the whole world can know. There are no excuses. This is a universal warning from God to everybody on planet Earth at that time. And I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice. There's that loud voice again. Loud voice. Shouting it out from the rooftops so that everyone will know clearly what is going on. And he says, woe, woe, woe. In the Old Testament, many times, woe is used as an extreme warning. Sometimes it is duplicated. Woe, woe. This is one of the only times that's ever used. Three woes. This is it. This is the worst time in in earth's history. Take warning. Take note. Again, it's God crying out, be saved. Be warned. Woe, 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 woe to those who dwell upon the earth. Literally, earth dwellers from Revelation 3.10. Earth dwellers are unbelievers. Woe to you, earth dwellers. Woe to you. Those of you who have not repented yet. Those who have not embraced Christ as Savior yet. This warning is for you. Woe, woe. Whoa. And we're going to see following like in Revelation 9, 13, uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 14, that these three woes are identical to the next three trumpets. So the first woe is the fifth trumpet. The second woe is the sixth trumpet. The third woe is the seventh trumpet. Woe, woe, woe to those who live upon the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Well, if you know Jesus Christ personally right now and you are adopted into his family, he has saved you from all this. He has saved you literally from his wrath. He has saved you from his judgment because you have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've admitted your sin. You believe that Jesus was the God man, that when he went to the cross, he did it knowingly and willingly to specifically absorb the wrath of God the Father as the substitute for you and me as a sinner And you already got punished for your sin when God the Father punished Jesus and God nailed it to the cross, satisfied the law. Jesus died, paid the penalty of death for sinners, rose again from the dead, conquering death on behalf of sinners so that He could give us new life in Him so that we could be born again. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that God did when He saved us is He saved us from His wrath. He saved us from judgment in this life, His wrath and anger because of sin. And He also saved us from wrath and judgment in the future in heaven. And that's Romans 8.1. If you are a Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is no legal judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? That means when you get to heaven, God isn't going to remember all of your sins and throw them in your face or at your feet and say, remember all these things you did? He's not going to do it. They have been wiped away. As far as the east is from the west, washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is the glorious gospel. And it's simply by believing in Jesus' work on our behalf, not what we can do for Him. It's the gospel of grace. It is the gospel of glory. It is the gospel that only comes by faith. Believing in His work. And that's the great hope. So you can rejoice as a Christian. That is not your fate in your future. But as a Christian... We, we know plenty of unbelievers, don't we? This is motivation to keep praying. Keep praying for people we know for their salvation. Keep watering the gospel and watering the gospel. Even if you have to water it six years or nine years or 20 years, watering the gospel, praying for God's grace and the salvation of lost souls.
while there's time. Come while there is time. That is the message for believers from the book of Revelation. And if you don't know Jesus Christ personally and you're hearing this stuff and you're kind of struck by it, you're either frightened by it, you're laughing it off because you think it's a fairy tale, uh, my prayer is that you let the Holy Spirit of God keep working on your heart until Jesus draws you to Himself. And it's simple as just crying out to God and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You do that, He'll save you in a moment of time. Let's go ahead and pray to the Father. Father, we do thank You for being a great God and a holy God. Thank You for being the Creator. You own all things. You are in charge of it. You're the ultimate say and steward of every part of Your creation. All of it serves Your purpose. We've seen that today. Uh, You hate sin. You're a judge. And God, thank You also that You... You desire that people would be saved, repent, come to You. You want to rescue people from sin, hell, the devil, the world. and that's God, thank You that that's why You sent Jesus, to seek and to save those who are lost. He's still doing that today. We know it. We've experienced it. We've seen it in our own midst. God, continue to do that until You come. As we commit all this to You in Christ's name, Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.